Oh, how we need the Lord. In this room, I'm sure there are many trials and tests, struggles, heartaches, and we need the Lord. We just need Him. He, um, he allows us to go through tests because those who bear fruit, He wants to bear more fruit. And uh, if you aren't in a time of pruning, you'll soon be in one. Because we're always, the Lord is always pruning our lives. He's always taking us and causing us to, to trust in Him more, be reliant on Him more, depend on Him more, that we might bear much fruit to His glory. So, we learn to need Him. We are dependent upon Him. Can I ask you, I asked the first uh, service, can I ask you to purposely choose to fast at least one meal this week and use that time to pray for our Fire Up the Grill Sunday? The people that will come on our campus here who don't know the Lord, many have come year after year and our hearts are burdened that they would come to know Jesus. And if we take the Lord seriously, He'll take us seriously. So can you just um, think about setting aside one meal and just take that time and occupy it with praying for the lost who will be on our campus and just the, our ministries in general as we reach out this summer and that we might see a great harvest of, of people coming to know Christ. Well, I am going to um, disregard the great advice of the mother of Linus Van Pelt. You know who Linus Van Pelt is? I think his sister's name was Lucy Van Pelt. And his friend was Charlie Brown. Linus's mother told him this. Never talk in public about politics religion or the great pumpkin you remember that don't leave me out here hanging some of you are old enough to know this every Halloween Linus would sit in the pumpkin patch waiting for the great pumpkin to come don't you remember and it never happened can you imagine and of course that advice goes back long before Charlie Brown in fact, I think it's credited to have gone that statement of in public it's not a good idea to talk about religion or politics goes back to 1888. And I, I get to spend my whole life talking about religion, so there you go. And you've asked me um, to do a pretty heavy thing this week to answer the questions, the great questions of life on sovereignty, predestination, election, and free will. Thank you very much. <laughs> so kind of you. And um, it really, it, it, to me, that each of these theological subjects is bound up in the theology of salvation. And I think can be correctly placed under the title, How Big Is God? We, each of us have to settle that question, How Big Is God? Would you open your Bibles for a moment to Isaiah 43? I want to establish an atmosphere this morning. And I could, we could almost 
open up our Bibles anywhere and settle this atmosphere of who God is and how big he is. But in Isaiah 53, I want to read a few verses and then in Isaiah 46. Lead out those, Isaiah 43, 8, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Over to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor, to Israel. And on and on we go as we read the descriptions in the scriptures of the awesome power and majesty and what word we use, sovereignty of God. Now, the word sovereignty means um, supreme and independent authority and power. And so throughout all of the scriptures, we read of the, the, the awesome magnificence of God. Now, it is said that if you wish to get a, an old-fashioned religious row going, just bring up one of these subjects, sovereignty, election, predestination, free will. At the risk of uh, all-out Donnybrook today, we're going to take a look at all four of them. And, you know, in our, in our language, we have no problem in the church talking about the chosen people of God. And when we use that kind of language, what are we usually referring to? Israel. We throw that around, we bandy that around, no problem. Chosen people of God, Israel. But as soon as we start to talk about the chosen in the church, the chosen people of God being the church, we're like, wait a second, what are you talking about? We struggle with that. The simple truth and reality of the scriptures is the people of God are always described as chosen. 
The chosen people of God. Even in the text we read, it's just a passing word. I chose you to be my witnesses, God. Always, throughout the scriptures, we read these words. So, so chosen and election are really quite synonymous. Election is a choice of God to choose a relationship with certain individuals. So we seem to have no problem with that, throwing that around. There is a poem that kind of describes the attitude of humanity. It's an old, old poem written in 1888 by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. Many of you uh, will know that that Latin word means conqueror. It's been used, this poem has been used by virtually everybody to try and beef up their sorry souls. It's quite ironic because this poem, in my mind, does anything but that. Listen to it. Out of the night which covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem is, is used um, by the audacity of human beings to shake their fist heavenward and say, whatever befall me, I am the captain of my fate, I am the master of my soul, or the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. It's kind of ironic as I looked historically who used this poem. Winston Churchill used it while England was being bombed to smithereens. Oh, sure, you're the master of your soul, all right, the captain of your fate. Nelson Mandela, while he was in Robben Island prison, POWs in a Vietnamese a Viet Cong prison, and Timothy McVeigh, the bomber, just before he was executed. Really? I am the master of my fate? I am the captain of my soul? Really? Well, what does the Bible have to say about all these things? Father, as we take a few moments now to realign our beliefs, our understandings to the Scripture, I pray, O oh God, that we would cause our sensibilities and emotions to become secondary to the truth we find in the pages of Scripture. If we hope to reconcile our emotions with truth in this matter, it will not be easy. So by faith, Lord, would you please cause us to choose truth. For in it is the description of the awesomeness of our God. May we not believe in anything less than the magnitude of your glory, I pray. And help our minds to welcome by faith the truth. For in it we are shaped, by it we are shaped in how we live, what we do, 
where our passions lie and how we respond to you in love, O oh God. So what is at stake? Everything's at stake. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your love, who you really are. May we not diminish because of our flawed minds, our limitations, the truth, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So what do we find in the beginning? Uh, before we go there, I, I had, interestingly, uh, this week, I had a research assistant do some, help, some work for me, and I assigned him, Pastor Nick, to find in the scriptures free will. And he found it for me. There it is. <laughs> See, it's in the scriptures. You can find it. But you have to do a lot of manipulating to get there. You can find free will offerings. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that for the rest of the time if you would like. But you will hunt and search endlessly for a description or the juxtaposition of these two words, free will, as it relates to humanity. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't exist. Now let's look through the pages of Scripture. Let's go to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The emphasis is a dominant creator and then a creation. And in terms of the first description of man, we find in verse 28 in terms of God and his relationship with humanity. In verse 28 of Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and said, Have at it. Be free. You have a free will. Oh, I stopped reading, didn't I? Put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The description from the very beginning, the emphasis is not from the dawn of man, is not on free will, but rather a dominant, sovereign God and a responsible to God creature. That's the description from the very beginning. A dependent, responsible to God creature. The original design is the sovereignty of God and the accountable responsibility of man. So th these are the two parallel truths that, that walk through the world. A sovereign in charge, independent, authoritative God, powerful, all-powerful God, and a responsible, accountable human. That's what we have. God commands his dependent creature. If you notice here, he commands them that they are required to serve him. They're required to follow along after his will. This is what God wants. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to increase in number. He wants us to fill the earth. He wants us to subdue the earth. He wants us to rule over his creation. 
He wants us to, he, he commands uh, originally to eat of any tree, but not this tree. So God, God has a, uh, uh, boundaries and expectations. We are responsible. So man was free to be responsible to God until they weren't. Because by the time you get to chapter 3, you realize that there was an interruption in this expectation. And now what we call the fall, whereby man decided to rebel against the will of God. So now man is fallen from free to be responsible to God to now enslaved to the irresponsibility of sin. What the Bible teaches us is when man rebelled against God, he did not become free. He rather became enslaved. Now he traded the opportunity to freely serve Almighty God to now be a slave to sin. Everybody outside of Jesus Christ is a slave to sin. Not free. When mankind fell, all human beings became, became sinaholics. Each baby that is born has fetal sinahol syndrome. And so we have this plight. Only in Christ can mankind be freed again to be able to serve the will of God. Not to do anything they want, but rather to serve the will of God. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God's will. We've been saved to serve the will of God. Now, you know, we could quit right now, and um, by the way, I won't get through this whole sermon, so if you want to know what I might have said, you'll have to get the notes. I have to cut this short. Shorter than I thought. It's always the way it is. But let me interject at this point, uh, because it, you know, it sounds cut and dry, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. Uh, no free will. Really, you're a slave to your sinfulness or a slave to righteousness, one or the other. But um, there's more to the story than that. The reason most of us are confounded or at least struggle with the intersection of these truths or how to reconcile these truths. How do I reconcile the sovereignty of God, all-powerful, accomplishes His purposes, and at the same time holding me accountable or you accountable, responsible to God. I mean, if God is all-powerful and purposes the world and all of that, then how, how is it that it works that, that I can be held responsible or accountable for how I live? Isn't, isn't God in charge? The Bible holds these two things in tension, these two truths that, that don't easily come together. The sovereignty of God, all-powerful, all-purposeful. His plans can't be thwarted no matter what I do and all of that. And yet I'm out here kind of like a free agent, responsible to God, accountable to God. How, do, how does this reconcile itself, particularly in salvation? Let me uh, interject at this point and say the full 
explanation and understanding of these truths are above my pay grade. And I'll tell you why. Because what God has done is given us the description of truth written in His Word to a finite creature locked in time and space describing a truth that is outside of time and space. So let me kind of, I, I don't want you to lose me and say, the guy's getting too weird on me now, he's getting too philosophical, it's like the Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. No, that's not what Think about this. We are locked into three dimensions as humans, as creature. God dwells eternally outside of the three dimensions in the fourth dimension. God is outside of time and space. And the mechanism or the theology of salvation that we are now trying to explain, that I'm now trying to explain to you and how all of this works, I'm explaining in time and space on written page, on flat written page, of a truth that exists in reality outside of time and space. You're saying, are you making this up? No. Let's go to Ephesians 1 and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to look at starting at verse 4. One of the greatest texts on the explanation of our salvation using all of these words, or most of these words, predestination, sovereignty, and election, all that kind of stuff. For he, meaning God, chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now let me put that into real life experience. On a hot summer Sunday, July morning in 1964, from my perspective, I came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But Ephesians 1 tells me that I actually came to know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior before the world was even created. So how do we reconcile that in our human finite minds? You know, I thought, hey, you know what? I was under deep conviction of the Holy Spirit on that day, in that time, in that place, in that space. York Road Baptist Church, Guelph, Ontario. 1964, July. Walked up the aisle and came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Paul tells me in Ephesians that God chose me before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined me and any of you who know Christ to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. I didn't adopt myself into the family of God in July 1964. Oh, by the way, God, I'm giving you a break. You should be very excited about this and very happy. Ricky Baker is coming into your family. 
I'm adopting myself into your family and you're going to be my adopted father. No, he adopted me before the foundation of the world. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Salvation, therefore, and the discussion that we're having this morning, you must understand, exists outside of time and space, but is explained in time and space and recorded on the written page. Now, instead of embracing this truth, and, and can we in humility accept the fact that there are things God does that we can't possibly fully understand. And, and because we're trapped in a finite mind in a three-dimensional reality. So we have to go there. We have to accept that humility that no matter how many times I explain these things to you, because you've asked me many times, there are always going to be limitations because of our finite mind. So the problem is, though, we don't as humans like to accept that and just say, you know what, by faith, there are many of us do, but, but there are so many of us don't. No, I, Rick, I want to logically work this out in my mind. I want to I come to some sort of reasonable explanation that satisfies my sensibilities and particular my emotions. Because the ramifications of this are a struggle for most of our emotions. If God chose us before time... I don't have to continue on to tell you what kind of weird ramifications that brings up in our thinking. And so many of us have decided, well, I know, we'll fix this. I'll be able to reconcile both God as sovereign and me as satisfying my emotions. And so here's how uh, many people explain it. They say, well, since God is all-knowing, what he did before time is he looked down through the quarters of time and he saw little Ricky Baker in 1964 turning over his heart to the living God and so God elected that person, me, into his family. But you see what we've done with that? That's been explained to me so many times that people say, that's how it's done. That couldn't be further from the truth. The problem with that is one gigantic word throughout all of the scriptures with respect to our salvation. Grace. Grace. As soon as you embrace that idea, you have to disgrace grace. You have to jettison it. Because if God chose me and elected me into his family because I chose him, then he owes me salvation, do you see? If he picked me on his team because I picked him to be on my team, then I'm being rewarded for picking him. We can no longer say, by grace we have been saved, because in fact, I deserved salvation. 
It was a work on my part. When in fact the scriptures do not teach that. So instead of embracing by faith what the scriptures appropriately hold in tension, we insist upon emotionally satisfying solution that ends up in an even more egregious, with more egregious problems. And the biggest one is grace. So we're not the first culture to, the first group of people to question these things. In fact, clearly from Romans chapter 9, we discover that the Apostle Paul has faced this very, these very questions. If you would turn there right now, uh, there's a description on, on, uh, on this whole matter of God's sovereign choice that Paul places in the midst of the book of Romans the first eight chapters of Romans are perhaps one of the finest uh, theological discussions on uh, understanding of salvation that is presented in the scriptures anywhere. And to set the stage for what's happening and why he writes chapter 9, 10, and 11, we have to understand that he is, he is going into synagogues he is preaching the fact that unless a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. They cannot be a part of the family of God. He's preaching this message to Jews who considered themselves the chosen people of God and therefore part of the people of God by virtue of their race. But at the same time, Paul, this, this apostle, is teaching them that, that the, the scriptures from the very beginning are teaching the, the simple truth that you don't come to God by race or heritage or family background, but you come to God by faith. And so these individuals are, wait, wait a second, and, and Paul is making the point that, and look around yourself, there's lots of Jews that are not following after God. And they're struggling to reconcile that fact because for them, they are coming to the conclusion, if Israel is not following God, then God's word has failed. There's something wrong with God's word. At stake in Romans chapter 9 is the very veracity, the very integrity of the word of God. How can we rely on the word of God if thousands upon thousands of Jews are not even following God. And so Paul begins this description here. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that my, I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul is saying there couldn't be a nation that's more advantaged than Israel. They have been given everything. Yet they have not, for the most part, majority of them have not followed faithfully after God and are therefore not saved. What's the explanation for this? Paul determines to give them an explanation as hard as it is to hear. Because at stake is, can God 
carry forth his word or is, is God unable to? The only reason, the only reason that, uh, that God would come under fire as far as Paul is concerned is if God had somewhere in his word promised that because they were Jews, they would be saved. And Paul goes on now to explain the simple fact is God never promised that. He promised something quite different. Listen. It is not as though, verse 6, God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. It is through, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Who, who were these children? Esau, Jacob, the twins. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand... And what is God's purpose in election or in salvation or in this creation of his family? That it would not be by works but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger just as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. Before either of them had done anything good or bad. Now I know this bumps up against our sensibilities but but logically as you think this through it has to be this way what then shall we say is God unjust the only way God would be unjust is if he had promised that every child born to every Jewish woman will be saved and God never promised that here's what God promised I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And you collectively, if you haven't read this text, are saying, that's not fair. Well, you could have written the scriptures yourself then. Because that's exactly what is said here. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. I don't like that. Well, one of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? And this text goes on, but I have to cut it now and, and just help you to understand that the truth of the matter is God has declared himself a saving, sovereign God 
who has reserved for himself the right to choose his family. Not by our works, not by our race, not by our heritage, not by our family, but by the gift of salvation he grants to us by grace through faith. And all we can say is, oh God, how in the world could you be so gracious to me that you would include me in your family when there is nothing good in me, there is nothing deserving in me, there is nothing worthwhile in me, there is nothing that should attract me to you or me, you to, there is nothing that should bring you to this amazing grace. And because God has declared himself free to choose his family, then we learn that God is sovereign and therefore able to deliver on his word. Because his word is this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I say, thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for your compassion. And I might add that anyone who is outside of the family of God doesn't want God. They don't. The only people who want God are the people who God has drawn into his family and transformed our hearts from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness to do his will. These, we are the only, the, the ones who are chosen to his family are the only ones who love God. And the only truth that guarantees the promises of God won't fail is the absolute and total and complete sovereignty of God. When Paul writes here, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, isn't that one of our favorite verses? Don't we throw that around at each other all the time? Whenever anything's come, the wheels are coming off the, off the truck, we're saying, well, you know, we know, all things work together for good. Those who love God are called according to his purposes. We count on that being true, don't we? It can't be true unless God is sovereign. Our salvation can't be true unless God is sovereign. Our security can't be true unless God is sovereign. God can't take me to my heavenly home after I die unless God is sovereign. There is nothing that he promises in his word that will come true unless God is sovereign over all things. And so when we come together and discuss these difficult truths, the simple reality is this. Unless God were sovereign over all, this book is a waste of our time. Like, throw it away. It means nothing. But that he is puts us in a position of being able to trust everything he promises us. God says, what I plan, I will fulfill. What I promise, I will bring to pass. Who I call will come to salvation. 
That's what gives us the evangelism impetus. Because we go and tell the lost about Jesus Christ because if God calls them, they will be saved. That's what we believe. You can have the security of God's promises, His Word, or you can try and fool around with free will, but you can't have both. So, let me just point out a summary statement for you. And I would suggest you might want to get the notes or you might get them online. Under points to ponder, there's some more things to think about. Because this subject is not closed in the hearing of my sermon this morning. It just isn't. This is a gigantic subject. But the summary results bring us to the total sovereignty of God. From first to last, the story of redemption is God's story planned and unfolded according to his good pleasure. And for his exclusive glory, God alone is free, man is not. God alone is God, man is not and cannot be. The purposes of God in salvation is his right to choose. He does not want people saved by works. Because we will boast. We will point our fingers heavenward every day of our lives and say, God, you owe me because I chose to follow you. You owe me my health. You owe me my wealth. You owe me a good, sweet life because I chose you. And God will not have it. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of works. It, salvation, grace, faith, the whole package is a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Prepared in advance for us to do. So in order to accomplish his ultimate purpose to display the fullness of all his glory that the whole of creation might praise him, we need to get it through our minds once and for all that the ultimate purpose of God is not the salvation of man. If it is, he's a miserable failure. The ultimate purpose of God is the glory of God of which the salvation of many is a part. If you can digest that, you can understand the magnificence of how the universe functions. It's to the glory of God alone. And we have been called into his family to the praise of his glory. So as we now turn our attention to the table of the Lord, of which we are eternally grateful that we get to participate, we marvel with profound thankfulness that in his foreknowledge, in his love, the sovereign God drew us into his family, brought us into his family, included you and me in his salvation plan before time. He planned a family and planned to set you and I free from our slavery to sin. I can't be without my Bible very long. 
that we might be enslaved to righteousness. Let me read one more text to you. Romans 6. Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you obeyed because the sovereign God enabled you to, you have been set free from sin, but not to do whatever you want, and have become slaves to righteousness. And that's a good slavery. We have traded slavery to sin in which we rebelled against the will of God to slavery to righteousness in which we welcome the will of God. That's the distinction. There are two peoples in the world, those enslaved to sin and those slaves to righteousness. Which side do you want to be on? I want to be a slave to righteousness. If you're a slave to righteousness, would you join me at the table of the Lord as we celebrate our salvation? Let's stand as we pray. Father, here we stand in your presence amazed that you would love us and draw us into your family, not because of anything good we have ever done or ever will do, but because of your grace that we might be a demonstration in the universe of the praise of your glory, that you can take stubborn, rebellious, sinaholic hearts and rescue us, kicking and screaming, rebelling, resisting, and turn us into trophies of your grace to demonstrate to all of creation the power of a sovereign God to change a hardened heart of which mine was hard. And oh God, we praise you and thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, some argue that this truth of the sovereignty of God and his foreknowledge and plans seems to undercut the zeal for evangelism. I can tell you from personal testimony that I think there is no one more zealous for evangelism than me. And I believe this truth of God's sovereignty. And the reason I'm zealous about evangelism is because God is sovereign. He will honor His promise that if we go and tell people the truth of the gospel, people will be saved. These truths are held in tension from the very description of the cross. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's sovereign plan and the responsibility and accountability of men held in tension 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold in him. And so we praise him and we thank him. And because our God is dominant and sovereign, our salvation is secure in him. And his coming again is for sure. And we proclaim the truth with passion because God's entire family is not yet in. If, God, if and when God's entire family is in, Jesus Christ will return. So today is the day of salvation until Christ returns. Our Father and our God, we praise you and we thank you for salvation. We thank you for your amazing love for us, your grace. And now, O oh God, as we move into another season of outreach, seeking the lost, as part of your plan of salvation, you have commanded us to go and make disciples. And so, we, because we are those who are slaves to righteousness, desire to serve the will of God, our Father to whom belongs all the honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.